to love and be loved in return. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, honestly, I think it is something. <laughs> All right, Mr. Moulin Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, where we have an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're coming at you today with a play by Tom Stoppard called The Real Thing. Yeah, yeah, and I'm super excited. Tom Stoppard is one of my favorite playwrights. He's a very intellectual, very wordy playwright with you know lots of really deep characters, so I'm super excited to get to talk about him a little bit. Um, this is a somewhat auspicious play. It is not a Pulitzer Prize winning play, but it is the winner of the Tony Award, and it's the winner of the Tony Award twice for uh, a play-related thing. It won Best Play in 1984 when it was originally produced, and then again in 2000 for Best Revival of a Play. So this is uh, an often-done play. Uh, it started at the Strand Theatre in London, a very famous theatre across the pond, as it were, and uh, then it came to the Plymouth Theatre on Broadway, and that production on Broadway uh, had a couple names that at least I recognized. I didn't, I didn't recognize any of the uh, actors from the London version, but I'm, I'm sure there are plenty who did, but the two in the Broadway production that I recognized were Jeremy Irons playing Henry and Glenn Close playing Annie. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jeremy Irons playing Henry. That's yeah. hilarious to me. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I wish that I had known that before I read this. <laughs> Just go back <laughs> and let his sultry tones. As Jeremy Irons. Wow. <laughs> that blows my mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this is a, a, a well loved play. It is often taught, uh, often produced. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get to talking about it. Yeah, it is. It you know, like Jackson started by talking about Tom Stoppard and his great uses of language. This is a play that's a lot about language. The plot itself mostly follows a couple, Henry and Annie. This couple does not start the play together. In fact, they both begin the play in separate marriages and are having an affair and then come together, leave their former spouses and become a couple and get married and then live the rest of the play together. And it follows sort of various subplots after that. It's it's interesting. The first couple scenes are sort of their own plot that then is resolved. And then we follow several other subplots for the rest of the play. One of those is that Annie is involved with a a committee, an activist group called Justice for Brody. And Brody is a soldier who uh, lit the a wreath at the tomb of the... Uh, I was about to say the tomb of the unknown soldier, but that's an American thing. It's the... Um, uh, it's some famous uh, uh, UK landmark, mm-hmm. and he he lit a wreath on fire as a as a protest act, and we'll talk about why he really did it later on, I believe. But he uh, supposedly is a protest act and was put in jail. So Annie is involved in telling his story, trying to get him out of jail. She calls him a political prisoner, and yada da da da. And she wants to produce a play that he's written about this experience of his, uh, which Henry, who is a playwright, thinks is pretty bad. And so that, that occupies some of the middle and end parts of the play. There's some other dabblings with the other characters as they kind of have these sort of side plots that interact with the main plot. It's very hard to find like a through 
description of events. Um, it's sort of a it's sort of a play about a relationship as it goes through several different things over the course of however many years. Yeah, it's like two or two, a little over two years that the course of the play runs. And this is a good one if, if you want to follow along in the conversation to read beforehand, because uh, what Jacob said is right on. It is very kind of winding. There's a lot of overlay of events that happen and not necessarily they're not necessarily a through line. Um, Henry and Annie have a pretty solid through line throughout the play, but the other kind of satellite storylines come and go. And uh, a, a lot of a lot of different things happen that aren't necessarily event-based plot points. There's a lot of plays, for instance, um, within the play. There's like maybe four different plays within this play. Well, like I said, yeah, Henry is a playwright, so he's constantly working on different projects. And then what I didn't say was that Annie is an actress, so she's constantly in several different plays. And actually, Henry's former wife, Charlotte, is an actress as well, and so she's in some plays at the beginning. Yeah. And, and Annie's husband, and former husband, husband, Max, yeah, who is also, also an actor who is one of the first scenes of the play. Yeah, interestingly, and I think that that's a good hopping in place. So the first scene of the play is a scene between Max and Charlotte. So this is uh, Max, who is Annie's former husband. At this time, they are married. In this at this chronological point in the story, they're married. So Max is married to Annie. Charlotte is married to Henry. So the scene is between Max and Charlotte, and they are they are playing what what seems to be a normal scene. Remember, as an audience member, you wouldn't necessarily know right away that they're in a play, but they are acting in a play, but the play looks like real life to an audience member in our real world, probably. So there might be some interesting playings of things like that. But what happens over the course of the scene is that Max's character in the play, audience might think Max himself, but it's Max's character in the play, discovers that Charlotte's character has been cheating on him. And he discovers the sequence of events is kind of very specific. Um, Charlotte, Max is sitting alone doing some sort of activity. And Charlotte comes in the door having been traveling somewhere. And Max confronts her with a piece of evidence about her cheating and an argument ensues. So that scene we learned in the second scene was just part of a play that Max and Charlotte were in together written by Henry. But several other scenes in the course of the play, their stage direction from Tom, Tom Stoppard is this scene should be immediately reminiscent of scene one. Mm -hmm. The scene where that is supposedly fiction. And these are these other true scenes. So, Jackson, how does that repetition of uh, like scene structure strike you? Because that happens at least twice more in the play. The woman enters and is confronted about her cheating. Yeah, it really kind of drives home that that is a, a core part of the play because you get to see kind of multiple perspectives of each of those. Uh, the, the characters do address kind of that the first scene is Henry, the playwright's kind of ideal world of this. He has, you know, all the rewrites and uh, I forget exactly the drink they say that he's had beforehand, but he's, he's writing himself basically very smart in the scene for Max, the actor playing him. Um, but then later on, you get to see... Uh, the scene where he's actually in that position of he discovers a piece of evidence uh, from from Annie that doesn't corroborate the story that she's had. And he's beginning to question whether or not she is being honest with him. So you get to see you get to see the real thing, 
right? Like you get to see kind of the play acting of this is what this is how it would play out in my mind if I were to confront my spouse about cheating um, in, in my mind with all the the situational with the, with the situation being perfect. This is how I would dream it to be, but then when the moment actually happens, it's drastically different. So that's that's and what Charlotte that actually comments a little bit about that. Remember, Charlotte is Henry's first wife. They're married yeah. at the beginning of the play, and so in scene two, what you see happen is Max comes over to Henry and Charlotte's apartment to kind of shoot the breeze, to hang out. You learn later why Henry actually invited Max over because he's married to Annie and they're having an affair. Yep. Um, but the premise of the scene is that Henry invites Max. over over because he feels bad that he's had to do this play and wants to hang out with him. So Max comes over and they kind of talk about the play that Max and Charlotte are doing. And that's one of the things Charlotte comments on is, well, Henry has written Max, this or the character that Max plays, as this witty, sort of above-it-all intelligent person who, when he confronts his wife with cheating, is, is filled with one-liners that stab to the heart and has right. had time to collect himself and is reacting in a certain way. But that's not at all how Henry would react if he found out I was cheating on him. He'd be incoherent. He would never, right. he wouldn't have time for all these words. And, and Charlotte says, you know, one of the things that makes a play different than, um, than real life is that the characters, the playwright has had the time to think about what the characters are going to say. And so characters in play subsequently say things that have been pre-thought about. Whereas in the real world, nobody has, for the most part, time to think about how they're going to react to situations. They just react. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, Henry's reactions are quite good throughout the play. Right. <laughs> I mean, Actually, when he finds out later in the play, spoilers, that Annie is cheating on him, mm -hmm. um, to be honest, his reaction is not, it's not what Charlotte thought it would be. Right. Right. It's not a babbling incoherence. Probably not what he thought it would be either, but still. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so let's I, let's kind of get into some of the, the characters of this play, if I can kind of direct us there, because that's where I feel like a lot of the heart of it is. And starting right from the beginning, you have this this uh, four these four characters who seem very pivotal. Uh, this is almost, this is kind of a, just a throwaway thought, but I didn't realize that I was that it, the first scene was a play within the play until like halfway through that second scene. Well, that's sort of what I was saying is that I think that, I mean, it would, there are ways obviously to direct and create the show so that it's very obvious that scene one is a play sure. and scene two is real life. But I don't know if that's what Stomp, Tom Stoppard intended. I was about to say Stom Toppard, um, <laughs> but Tom Stoppard intended. I think that he might have intended a world where the audience is confused a little bit at the beginning and has mm -hmm. to play catch up. And well, there's some theater psychology about that that you want your audience to be catching up because it makes them interested. But also the play is somewhat about this sort of balance of real life and how real life is different from these plays and how, you know, real people are forced to react to real messy situations. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's some interest in that too, of not knowing for a while what's real life. Yeah. And who to trust, right? Like I, I remember reading through that first scene and, and thinking the, sorry, reading through the second scene and thinking from the first scene, you know, that uh, Charlotte would be cheating on on Henry or some or no cheating on Max with Henry and so when Max comes over there's this kind of tension of like why is Max here right <laughs> he's going to figure it out and and then partway through that scene is is when it comes out pretty specifically that uh Henry asks how was the show last night and 
that's that. I made it all the way to there before I figured it out. Maybe someone more <laughs> astute would have picked up on it sooner. But I was like, oh, it was a play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's a weird world to live in, of course, because Tom Stoppard is writing a character, writing a play. Right. So there's some two of the world where uh, the the first scene just English-wise, the way that, that the playwright uses language doesn't sound that different from the second scene just because Tom Stopper wrote them both. Right, right. <laughs> so there, there's some confusion just in the, the language itself, where, whereas you imagine talking to Tom Stoppard personally is probably very different than talking to one of the characters in his plays. Yes. Which is the situation the characters in this play find themselves in. They're talking about characters that Henry created and then talking to Henry himself, and some of what they discover is the differences and similarities between them. How self-aware do you think, I mean, this is just pure conjecture, but how self-aware do you think Tom Stoppard is of that? Because this strikes me as a kind of a introspective play in some ways from the perspective of the playwright. I'm not sure. For sure, I think um, Henry is probably at some level a manifestation of Stoppard himself. A playwright writing a playwright has to be self-aware right. enough to say I'm probably in some level writing myself or an idealized version of myself, a more clever version of myself, a more emotionally mature version of myself, or maybe in some ways a worse version of myself. But it's hard to imagine that Tom Stoppard wouldn't at least be cognizant enough to say Henry is probably some level of a manifestation of myself. Yeah, I think I would agree. Henry has a lot of these lines that are uh, he he has he definitely has the 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 higher amount of lines within the play as well, but he has, he has a lot of these very um, insightful and introspective lines. You get the feeling that 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 he is writing. He is kind of the play of the playwright. Uh, you know, he's 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 able right. to. He, he gets to give a, a sort of a manifesto yeah. of love and relationship theory several times throughout the play, which other characters aren't always given the access to do that. Mm-hmm. So you sort of wonder: Is this Tom Stoppard's manifesto? For example, uh, at one point, once Henry and Annie are together, Annie is talking about a play that she's acting in, and in the play, she is romantically involved with another actor. And she kind of, in order to bait Henry a little bit, describes some of the things that this male actor is doing to her on stage, like sticking right. his tongue in her ear and groping her, etc., as part of the scene, trying to get Henry jealous. And Henry isn't really jealous. And she says, well, what? What the heck? Why aren't you jealous? You should care more. Don't, is it that you don't care about me? And Henry says, no, the opposite. In fact, because I care about you and I love you and I know that you're mine and we're together, uh, I, I don't have to be jealous of this other guy. He says something like, you know, his, 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 his presumption of being able to grope you and lick your ear and etc. admits his poverty. Right. Because he, he, he's not the one who gets to come home to you every night and he knows that. And so Henry says, you know, I sort of get enjoyment out of that, knowing that this other poor guy doesn't knows that he doesn't get to come home to you every night and that I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, confidence and trust are like the two really big emotions or themes maybe in this play of, you know, you, you have characters vacillating between kind of confidence in their relationships, really, really um, 
viscerally and uh, and visually in love with each other. At least like so. So way back at the beginning, we have Max, right? Max is kind of the injured puppy dog of this play, because um, he he's he's a character that doesn't doesn't get a lot of stage time, and uh, Annie uh, cheats on him with Henry, and she leaves him, and he is very broken up about it. He pops up later on, and there's some closure with that, but. Um, he was, you know, kind of all in on this on this relationship, and then then it switches, and Henry and Annie are very very close. Um, what do you think about Charlotte, who's kind of this other satellite character? She holds she holds that confidence that Henry has as well, but in kind of a different way, in my opinion. What do you right? Just to briefly return to as you were talking about Max, because Max has the third scene, and it's between Max and Annie. And so, you know, we've talked about the first and second scene. The first scene is between Max and Charlotte. He is acting a character who discovers his wife is cheating on him. And the second scene is between all four of them, Henry and Charlotte, who are currently married, Max and Annie, who are currently married. And they have a very uh, long conversation in, in, their, in Henry and Charlotte's apartment in which it's discovered that Henry and Annie are cheating on their respective spouses with each other and that they're in love not just that they're in, in sex but that they're in love as well yeah. and then the third scene is max in an apartment doing something by himself annie comes in and he confronts her with a piece of information about how she's uh, he's this crucial piece of evidence that he's found that she's cheating on him with henry and so he has an opportunity to play out that exact scene that he acted and right. it goes very, very differently. He yeah. is sort of pathetic and babbling and incoherent, much like Charlotte thought Henry would be. So mm -hmm. you get to see that kind of flip of life. Charlotte is very interesting because she seems like she's going to be a very important character. And then she ends up only having maybe three scenes of a play that has a lot of, a lot of scenes, a lot of shorter scenes. She does not appear pretty much at all after the scene in the apartment between all four of those main characters. She has one final scene near the end of the play where Henry and Charlotte are about to send their daughter off, their daughter Debbie off, to go on to the road with like a musician. <laughs> go on um, tour They're, or they're something. very concerned about it. And that's sort of one of the things that I was trying to mention with the plot is that – you know, that's sort of an off branch of a different plot that, right. he, that Tom Stoppard returns these characters to, which doesn't have much to do with Henry and Annie's relationship, doesn't have much to do with a lot of the issues that have been established in the play, and yet a whole scene is dedicated to it, dedicated to Henry and Charlotte sending off this, this young daughter. And then in that scene, at least it's claimed that Charlotte has had multiple affairs over the course of her and Henry's marriage right. prior to their divorce. And that's the first time Henry apparently learns of that. So if we take her at her word that that's actually true and she's not just poking the bear, she uh, you know, she's a much different woman than you would have thought originally. And you sort of wonder how the the revelation to her about the cheating happened. It leaves that sort of, I, I'd be interested to see that scene. All yeah. you get is the Max and Annie half of that. You don't get the scene where Charlotte is told that Henry's been cheating on her. And she says, I thought you'd been cheating on me for a long time before that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been cheating on you. <laughs> Pretty much that whole marriage. Nine yeah. guys or something like that, she says. Mm -hmm. So she's got this whole inner life that is not flushed out a ton in the play that you get in these sort of small spurts. Yeah, and even very quickly after they 
after Henry and Annie come out that they are having an affair, uh, the the scene that is still within that timeline before we do a two year jump, Henry already says that she's with someone else, right? Like <laughs> she's she's with so and so, and if she and if she just uh, finished um, that up or something, or am I remembering that wrong? Is that no? I don't it? think so. I think the he he does mention that she's with an architect, but that's in the scene where Annie is trying to get him to do Brody's play. Oh, you're right. Which that's, I that's, think is that's scene I think one of is later two, yeah. off the top of my head. Yep. But so what Jackson was talking about there is there's a two year jump then. Um, Max and Annie are together. And then scene three is that Max and Annie break up or at least Annie reveals to him that she's been cheating. And then scene four is Annie is sort of moved into Henry's apartment and they're sort of cleaning up and moving out Charlotte and things like that. Um, And that's the scene where Henry where Annie's trying to get Henry jealous and uh, he reveals that you know I'm so in love with you and that I don't you know my my jealousy is actually more sort of sneering mocking of these poor blokes who are trying to get with you but can't and then there's a two-year jump where they become older somehow and then in this new world the sort of new plot that is going to occupy the second act, which is no longer about the cheating spouses and how to get be together or not be together, who's going to tell who. The new plot is about Annie and Brody. And not that they're together, but that Annie really wants to do this play. And the play apparently is really bad. Yeah. And Henry doesn't you know, he he doesn't have a ton of involvement with the play at the beginning. All Annie wants him to do is read the script and tell her what he thinks. And he reads it and says, well, it's terrible. She says, I shouldn't have asked you. Yeah. And (laughs) then later on, Henry is brought in to basically rewrite it and make it something presentable as a teleplay. Mm -hmm. Which is, I mean, it's a, it is a hard gear shift in the, and, you know, going from act to act, the first act, there's kind of really just one mention of of Brody, who's the guy, the, the prisoner who is locked away, the former military guy. They say that he was, uh, Annie met him on the train was the story, and that he was on his way to, to go protest, right? So he is on his way to protest, and Annie was going to the same protest, and they met, and he does this act of vandalism, and he's hauled away. And so, uh, yeah, Annie's, that, like Jackson said, that's the story. Yeah, Annie's story is that that was just such an Im, an impressive moment that she has been kind of doggedly trying to get him sprung out of jail in some way ever since then. And and so at the at this two year jump, Annie reveals that the the movement has kind of died off in two years. Right, public lost interest focus. has kind of faltered, etc. So in order to revive public interest, they need to do this play that Brody wrote, which is really more of a manifesto <laughs> right. about the government. It's a soapbox, right? It's a like, soapbox. It's a diatribe. It's a yeah. rant. And, you know, Henry says, look, this thing is terrible. I don't yeah. care if you do it or you don't do it. You're a, you know, you're your own person, whatever. But you right. ask my opinion, the play's bad. Mm-hmm. And there happens that it's a there's a long debate about writing. And I think it's a fairly interesting debate. Uh, if you permit me, Jackson, I'll try to give one side and you try to give the other. Ooh, okay. So Annie's point 
is that the play isn't bad. It's just not a play that you would write. It's not, it's not, you, you say it's not good, but that's because society has decided what's good and what's bad. Brody's not a writer. He's not trying to write a piece of literature. He's trying to write something that will be heard and make a statement. So in that way, it's trying to achieve something different. And it may not fit your conventional ideas of what language and cleverness should sound like, but it's achieving a different goal. And in that way, it's not bad. Whereas Henry kind of worships at the throne of words. Words themselves are these beautiful, powerful things that you are meant to form and to shape and to bring about subtlety with them and subtext. Um, You're supposed to not cudgel people with your words and beat them over the head with your ideas, but rather craft beautiful, not beautiful, um, intricate phraseology by which you bring your points across. Uh, and especially, he says, for the stage and for, uh, and for writing. I think, I think he would extend it to, you know, reading and writing as well. As well. Um, he, there's, there's an amusing kind of backlash that Annie gives him, right? She, what, what does she kind of discover? She, she pulled, well, well, first he does that great metaphor with the cricket bat. He oh, pulls yeah, out a cricket yeah, yeah. bat and he shows her that, you know, that it, it's not just a lump of wood shaped like a bat. It's all these different pieces of wood that fit together to make it so that you can hit a ball with this light touch and send it flying out into the crowd and over out of, out of the stadium. And he says in the same way, that's what words are designed to do. They fit together so that you can hit an idea and it will go soaring. So if the words fit together right, it will. And then he pull, and he says, you know, if you just take any stick that kind of looks like a bat and hit a ball with it, it's not going to go very far. So right. his point is, it's not it's not better because people, it's not that my plays or that good plays are better than Brody's script because the society or the academy has decided they are. It's because Brody's play doesn't work. Yeah, the, the words are bad. They don't fit together, so they don't send his idea soaring because it's just a lump of wood. It's not a finely crafted cricket bat. So then as a response, Annie <laughs> grabs out of the typewriter, I think, or yep. I don't know what else you do, maybe a notepad, what he's been working on. And what he's been working on is like a bad sci-fi movie that he's right. trying to sell to pay alimony. Yeah. And she like reads some of it out loud and it's pretty bad. Yeah. It's like Zod is standing on the bridge of the... <laughs> oh yeah, the starship, yeah. whatever. Yeah, and and you know he says, "Well, that's not that's not real literature. I'm only doing that to pay the bills. It's not the same thing." But he's pretty soundly embarrassed, I think, <laughs> in yeah. that moment. Yep. Yeah, but there is that kind of holding of. I, I absolutely agree that within this play, there is a holding of of words and ideas and the crafting of them as kind of this holy thing. And and it is clear both through Henry, you know, you, you kind of get the idea that maybe Henry is a little biased. He's, he's from the beginning kind of been rubbed the wrong way about Annie's infatuation with Brody. But, but then another character comes along who we haven't introduced yet. Uh, he's a young actor that Annie is in a play with, and he kind of corroborates that in a way. He, he, he sits down with her on the train, and we'll get into that scene in a moment, but he also says, um, yeah, the, the play is terrible. Uh, you, yeah, you, well, you, and the train scene is another 
of those scenes that is reminiscent of the play and real life. Because in the scene prior, the one that Jackson and I were just talking about between Henry and Annie, Henry reads a fair amount of the opening scene of Brody's play out loud. And you learn that what happens is that a young woman named Mary is sitting on a train headed to wherever, and some guy in a Scottish accent comes and starts talking to her about tyranny. Um, you know, so it sounds bad, even off the cuff. And <laughs> it's pretty bad. Uh, but then the next scene... Uh, got, uh, Annie is sitting alone on a train reading like the play and a guy comes up to her and sort of cracks jokes about tyranny. So there's another echo there right. between the, what it's created on the stage and then these real life scenes that seem to echo those scenes somehow and mm-hmm. maybe work out differently. Like what would really happen if you met somebody on – if somebody just came up and started talking to you on the train and it works out differently than what Brody would have imagined – and so, you know, Henry would say, well, of course it does because Brody's play is bad. Well, we've learned <laughs> that Henry's plays don't really accurately reflect right. what goes on when somebody actually cheats on somebody else either. So there's there's some maybe commentary there by Tom Stoppard about, you know, even good playwrights don't have it all figured out. They're not really achieving much more accuracy than these bad playwrights are. Right. That That kind of, you know the way you envision things coming along is very different than, than what they actually are. And that scene actually repeats like three or is it, is it three or four times that we get to see the train scene because there's the initial, we see see the actual play or rehearsal for the actual play of the train scene. Then once after that, Mm -hmm. so that you go back to the play version. Yeah. So you just get kind of get over and over. And Billy is this weird, this weird kind of character who comes across, right? He's this. So, so Billy's the guy that comes to her on the train. Yeah, Billy is this younger actor who she is. Uh, she she signs up to do. Um, oh shoot! It's it's a it's a Shakespeare, right? Or is no, it no, a no, no, no. It's, it's one of the uh, Elizabethan or Jacobean tragedies. Yeah, uh, yeah. About the the siblings that that decide to sleep together, right? And fall in love. The brother sister. I don't remember what it's called. Yeah, but that play. they're doing that play together, Billy and Annie. Mm-hmm. And they meet on the train. They have both read the script by Brody, the guy in prison, and they kind of have this because conversation. Annie wants Billy to do it with her. Yeah, yeah. Annie is is like kind of kind of trying to get Billy on board, trying to get Henry to rewrite the play a little bit, make it a little better. And uh, so they meet on the train heading north, and they kind of have this this back and forth. And this is where uh, we get be, we begin to question whether or not Annie is. Um, uh, having an affair with Billy, yeah, in this scene? Because, um, um, yeah, Billy flirts with her and she says, you got to stop flirting with me. And he says, well, I'm not going to do that. And they kind of go back and forth about the play and about Billy is Billy is Billy likes her and is trying to get with her. And Annie in this scene does a does a, a pretty reasonable job at shunning his advances. And it seems to shut it down. And And then what happens later on is that Henry kind of confronts her about Billy and then ultimately she dies, decides that she is going to have an affair with Billy sort of with Henry's permission. I don't know. We'll, we'll yeah. get to that later on. Hmm. Yeah. But in that's this interesting. Scene, okay. um, but in this scene, Billy is Billy tries to flirt with her and he says, I'm really only on this train because I saw you get on it. I don't even have a ticket. I just got on and the train took off. And he's just sitting there. They're both going down to rehearse the play in Glasgow, or maybe that's where maybe that's from Henry's play. They're going down to rehearse it somewhere in yep. a different part of Europe. And they're and he's flirting with her. It's, it's mm-hmm. pretty much the end of the scene. I think they're taking the train from London to Glasgow. So they're heading heading right, north there. Yes. Um 
Yeah, and then then let's kind of get into that. Let's kind of get into the meat of that because uh, a lot of that doesn't. There, there's these scenes where they kind of talk around, and actually she mentions that that she's uh, doing Strindberg, right? And uh, she's she's talking Miss about Julie. Yeah, that that's uh yeah uh, Annie's doing Miss Julie in that in the first chunk of the play mm-hmm. before that two year gap. Yeah, and so much of the kind of interaction between her and Billy, at least on stage, they're kind of talking around the issue, right? Sometimes it gets pretty clear. She says, we can't be doing this anymore. Um, but they 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 continue to spend time together until she comes home from uh, Glasgow. Uh, and, and there's this scene, this kind of confrontation. It turns out Henry has gone through her stuff, right? And what is the... I, I'm spacing on on what exactly he finds that... Well, what he has done is that she has said that she's going to take the overnighter back. Right. Yeah. And she's so he expects her to be home early in the day and she doesn't come back till later in the day. And he says, you know, I thought and this is, again, another scene reminiscent of that first scene in Henry's play, because Henry's sitting alone in the apartment. Annie comes in and he's confronting her with the evidence that she's cheating on him. Mm -hmm. Same kind of structure. And she says, well, I did take the overnighter back and I just stayed in the hotel. And he says, well, I know you didn't stay in the hotel. Or she says, no, I decided not to take the overnighter back. I just stayed in the hotel instead. And I came back down today. And he says, well, no, you didn't stay in the hotel because I called uh, when you didn't arrive and they said you'd checked out last night. And then she says, you're right. I'm sorry. I don't know why I lied. It seemed easier than saying the truth, which is just that I took the overnighter back and then I stopped and had breakfast and lunch or, you know, I just spent some time with another actor before I came home. No big deal. And he says, well, who was the actor? She says, well, okay, it was Billy. And his accusation is, oh, so you're sleeping with him. Mm -hmm. And she... This is kind of where the trust comes in and and leaving things unsaid and the damage that it can do kind of comes up a a little bit in this play. You see uh, amongst the stage directions for actors and there's not that many for actors. There's quite a bit of kind of uh, uh, blocking slash setting notes, but you see often in Henry's lines, especially you see the the stage direction. He realizes he's made a mistake. Um, and 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 you know he has said something that cannot be unsaid and therefore has has kind of progressed the relationship to a, a new place one that you can't regress from once those words are out there and annie does uh, a a really good job in this scene of not um letting henry nail down exactly what she's done right she talks around it she uh i think sa- she says you know i you know i haven't been sleeping with him Mm-hmm. Okay, I haven't been sleeping with him. You're you're accusing something that's not happening. He says, "Well, you but you talked about Billy a lot. You're always doing shows with Billy. You know, I, it seems like you might be now. You're spending time with him. I think you might be having an affair." She says, "I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. You know, you're jealous. This is this isn't like you. You're supposed to be the sort of aloof, uh, intelligent commenter, playwright, and you're becoming the sort of babbling, jealous person who calls uh calls the hotels and uh, you know checks up on me." and follows me and he says okay well if you're not then I'll just come with you next time you're rehearsing a play with Billy and she says this is crazy you know I, I I should be able to live my own life and then she reveals that Billy has agreed to do Brody's play with her which is kind of one of those linchpins you get the idea that she's been fighting for for a long time with this relationship with Billy right um you get you kind of wonder 
there's there's just so much focus on this Brody aspect and it's so out of place in the beginning of the play that whenever it comes up it keeps it keeps coming up and you and you draw attention to it every time throughout the play that Annie brings it up this is just another kind of uh pebble in that pool right of like wow so she's she's got Billy on board now right and that triggers something and she's building against something that Henry was against or towards something that Henry was against and she's Mm -hmm. doing it with an actor that everybody knows clearly likes her he's interested in her is constantly flirting with her she does all these romantic plays with her she says she's not sleeping with him but she won't she refuses to answer questions like well did you want to sleep with him Mm -hmm. Uh, can I you know okay then fine I'll come along and do it um and she she says at the end of that scene, sort of crucially for the theme, you have to find a part of yourself that's not about me. You have to find a part of yourself where everything's not about me anymore. So you can go back to being somewhat of your own person and you don't turn into this jealous mess. Uh, she, uh, she says, you have to find a part of yourself where I'm not important um, or, or every, you know, your life is going to fall apart if anything between us falls apart but crucially maintains that they're not sleeping together. The next scene is a rehearsal for Brody's play, and immediately it's revealed that Henry has rewritten it because they're doing this rehearsal and Billy says a line wrong or something, and and the the SM says, hey, hey guys, start over. You got to go back, do the new script, please, the new one. And then they have this sort of break in the rehearsals, and what ends up happening is over Mike, they have a conversation about Billy says, you got to tell him, you got to tell him, and, and, and he says, he knows he knows, of course he knows. That's why he agreed to do the rewrite. Mm-hmm. So there's some plot jumping here, which I'm interested, Jackson, in, in kind of the order of what you think happened here. Because in the scene that comes before this, between Henry and Annie, like I've said, she she says she's not sleeping with him. Whether she's lying or not, I guess I don't know. They're, the scene before that, they're rehearsing for this brother-sister incest play. And she does, she, the stage directions call for her to kiss him earnestly as part of the rehearsal, but probably also as part of their relationship. Uh, and then we jumped, and then then there's the scene where Henry confronts Annie, and she says, I'm not sleeping with him. And then there's this next scene where she says, he knows I'm sleeping with you, to Billy. Right. So what, what where did all this come about, do you think? Where, how did, did he, why did Henry agree to do it? What does this have to do with Annie and Billy sleeping together? Did he drive them to it, her to him? Were they already sleeping together? Was he right when he confronted her? I'm just interested. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think absolutely that this the the kind of argument that they have puts Henry in a position of of uh, deciding whether or not he wants to be a part of this relationship anymore, and he does, and he joins up choosing to write the play uh, or to rewrite the play to continue to be a part of this relationship because it is clearly important to Annie, and I think that is. I think that is what's actually happening is that this is so important to Annie that she will do whatever she needs to to get it done. And I think it's the antithesis of what was written in the first scene. Um, part of Charlotte's critique of the first play that Henry wrote with uh, Max and Charlotte in it is that Charlotte's character is this nobody character, 
right? Like she wants that character to have an affair. Instead, it's just it's uh, the, the crucial bit of evidence that Max finds on stage is that she left her passport. So she clearly couldn't have gone to Switzerland. And uh, that's how he discovers that there was an affair. But it turns out that through the course of the play that they wind up talking about that she just had a temporary passport. It was all a misunderstanding. She was actually a nice woman who had a job and he wasn't trusting her enough. And she's, she complains about that character, right? Who is this this kind of blah house uh, person with a job who goes out and just and is a one-dimensional character, someone for which uh, Henry's imagination has a foil to exercise his his wit in the context of this. And and crucially, Charlotte's character is not actually sleeping with anybody else. Exactly that she you know she just had she, a passport kerfuffle basically. Mix up. Yeah, yeah. And so she so Charlotte says, you know, if you'd actually written her a lover, then she might be a character who's interesting. But the audience finds out that she's not interesting at all, that everything was just a mistake, and they lose total interest in this nothing character now. Right. Annie is the antithesis of that because mm-hmm. she has this really strong through line, and let's kind of jump to there throughout the play. This moment with Brody that happened on the train is not what the story is, not what she right. has told everyone so far. Turns out she kind of convinced him to come with her. He wasn't. Right. She says so in, in the final scene of the play, which we're, we're several scenes away from. We're yet, jumping but it seems to crucial but... to this conversation. Um, Brody, actually, you meet Brody for the first time. He's out, I guess. Right. And he is watching this play that they did that was supposedly by him. And he talks about how, oh, you wrote my play clever. Now right. it means nothing anymore. It wasn't as good as my version, blah, 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 blah. But it, both Henry and Annie kind of realize that Brody is not who they thought he was. And Annie says, well, it's because what happened on the train isn't really what happened on the train. He was just going on the train, like headed home. I think he got in a fight and he was sent home on like unpaid leave from the military mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. He met me on the train and liked me so much that he decided he's going to follow me to this protest and then to impress me he lit this thing on fire and got in jail right so she's been kind of, i think she says he's he was he was my recruit and she couldn't leave him she's i mean she was a part of this kind of activist group right the the, the subtext of this is 1980s um anti-war movement right these people and the in- military was going to put missiles next to this town where a bunch of people had their summer cottages yeah and everybody was kind of up in arms about it because they didn't want their summer home to become a military target mm-hmm. so she came up with this uh story that uh enabled her to continue to try to fight for brody and not get in trouble both with max and with Hen- henry right because she uh, is is kind of covering for this fact that he basically liked her enough to follow her there, and she let him kind of. And it's and it's sort of her fault that he's in jail. She doesn't really let that exactly. on. Yeah. It's not that he was this political prisoner. It's that he did something to impress her, and now is in jail, and that's why she's so attached to the project. Mm-hmm. Which makes her such an interesting character, right? Like she drives for that the whole second half of the play. She gets Henry to rewrite the play for her. She gets a lead to do the play with her. She knows the play isn't that good. Like she knows it's just a, a, a soapbox play, but she still constructs, she gets the play produced. She gets it turned into a film. This is all kind of on Annie's uh, push, Right? From the beginning. And crucially, unlike Charlotte, the character that Henry writes for Charlotte, 
Annie actually is having the affair. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not as a secret thing that she's making a mistake on. She tells Henry. In fact, the scene after this play rehearsal for Brody's play is another scene for Henry and Annie in which it's made very clear that Henry knows what's going on. And Annie says, uh, you know, thanks for being understanding. And, and Henry says, you know, I don't like it, but I can't be the one to tell you to stop. That's not how relationships work, at least in Tom Stoppard's worldview. Right. And and he he's a great he has a great phrase about you know dignified cuckoldry is hard to manage. <laughs> like yeah. somehow I'm supposed to be dignified and the 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 staunch husband, and I'm supposed to be the one who gets hurt, but I but I, I'm also supposed to you know be dignified about it and and still somehow let my wife sleep with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then Annie has this sort of great counterpoint about you know. You, there was you who loved me and wanted me and Billy who loved me and wanted me. I was going to have to hurt somebody and I decided that I was going to hurt you because I knew we were, we're so in love. Our relationship is so strong. You're so amazing. You're so, this great husband and our, you know, our relationship is the real thing. And so I knew that you would be able to, to, to deal with being hurt, mm-hmm. that our relationship would survive you being hurt. She also talks about how annoyed she was with Billy, right? He's this this younger kid who's kind of, uh, I forget exactly the analogy, but he's like yapping at her the whole time, I think she says, and it's she's tired by the end of the play. That's the, the kind of last scene. She's Brody shows up, right? Who's this, he's a very abrasive Scottish guy who is, um, you know, spouting lines of, of uh, vitriol against against missiles and stuff like that, and the government, and uh, he he behaves kind of lewdly towards her. She hits him, and he leaves. Um, and and at that point, she kind of becomes tired, right? And it, and it, I I got such a feeling that you know this plan, this this wrong in the world that she felt that she had some responsibility to correct. She had been making all these choices to try to hit that moment of correction and and this this wrong that she had she had been a part of in the world and now that she hit it she is she was you you have this really touching moment between her and henry right like she kind of at the, at the end of the scene with brody at the end of the play yeah the last the last scene of the play she kind of relaxes again for probably the first time we've seen it feels like the first time we've seen her relax since so act one i think what i'm hearing you say jackson is that yeah, Correct me if I'm wrong here. You're, I think that you're saying that Annie sleeps with Billy as part of a campaign to do Brody's play. I think so. <laughs> That's interesting. So the scene before the ending scene with Brony where where uh, Henry and Annie talk about the fact that she's cheating on him. Um, Annie talks about how, you know, Billy got in under my skin. I uh, he, he surprised me. Yes, I'm in love with him, but really, ultimately, I'm yours. Um, but, you know, I can't, I can't be this sort of Annie who's totally complete in you and loving you. And the scene is also, remember earlier we mentioned that Annie told Henry before the affair, you have to find a part of yourself where I'm not important or you're going to fall apart because I have my own life and you seem not to and it causes you jealousy and pain. You have to find a part of yourself where I'm not important. Then in this later scene after the affair has been made public and Henry is, if not okay with it, aware of it and refusing to tell her not to have it, he says, 
the problem is that there isn't any part of me where you're not important. Right. I don't have a part of myself that where you aren't in it. And, you know, all of who I am is partially, you know, is, is about you. He says, I do this work because it can support the kind of life that I want to live with you. You know, if it were just me, I'd eat <laughs> spaghetti out of a can, wear socks, you know, only socks all day, not worry about work. But I do what I do because I want to support our life together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her, she has this whole response about how we, you know, I, I, I can't be complete in just you. Like you seem to be able to be complete in just me. So there's this back and forth of two ideas of relationship. And Henry's idea of relationship is, is sort of as a relationship as a complete whole, uh, you know, two two the sort of romantic idea of two lovers completed in each other. And Annie lives in this world where her relationship with Henry is only part of her life. And, the, you know, there are other parts of her life, like this campaign to free Brody, like this these plays that she goes and does even when men, you know, grope her as and kiss her and, and pretend to be in love with her and actually do fall in love with her as part of the rehearsal process. And she says that is, that is normal, that is healthy, that is important for our relationship. And, and Henry says... I'm going to agree with you, but only as in service of my larger idea, which is that I, you know, I can't have complete conflicting moral systems. So I can't have my moral system and your moral system. So I'll default to yours because everything is about you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And other, and other centric relationship is sort of at least what Henry claims. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. Annie uh, has some uh, divide in her that makes it, uh, you know, almost like not bringing work home. Like this is her work. It seems like um, she t- I, and and absolutely agree. She she's in these roles with people who wind up falling for her. She says that she wishes he would just stop needing Billy would just stop needing her so that she can be done with it. She says, "I'm so tired of telling him to grow up all the time and stuff like that." Um, so and she she uses the word petard and uh, neither of them actually define the word petard, but a petard is someone who carries explosives in under the walls of a medieval siege and blows up the walls, often and dying she, in the yeah, process. And she's relate. She's saying that Billy was like that. He kind of snuck yeah, in yeah. under my walls and blew down these walls. And and she says that she actually was in love with him, and then mm-hmm. tries to make this worldview of hers cre- created, which is you know my my worldview is that me me loving him and needing to be with him and wanting to also be with him does not mean I loved you any less because I'm not all you. There's other parts of me as well. And then Henry says, well, you can have this complex philosophical idea or maybe you're just another cake eater trying to have it all. (laughs) You know, have your cake and eat it too. Right, right. Which I think is a fairly good clap back to that line. (laughs) There are so many of those in this script, right? It's Tom Stopper. You know, that's what he's so stinking good at. Yeah, there's there's so so much good stuff. Let's talk about, uh, we're, we're drawing towards the end of our time. Was there anything else on the end of that? Thought before I switch into Tom yeah, Stoppardism. Yeah, I think we got through kind of a plot-wise these sort of major turns and character yeah. developments and stuff. So let's let's talk about sort of grander parts of the play. Yeah, uh, Tom Stoppard is an amazing playwright. Um, you can read his plays like I could read this play another eight times and notice something that I didn't notice before. It right, is, and actually one of the maybe criticisms of Tom Stoppard is his plays are so complex. <laughs> right, this one Absolutely. is maybe his most accessible. Mm-hmm. But this is the guy who wrote plays like. Rosencrantz and Guildenstein are dead. Yep, I mean, and like, Arcadia and, and Arc. Yeah, I mean, just over your head, knots kind of complex plays. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And and they're just so much to dig into. I imagine sitting in the theater, the actors have to work very hard because the words do have a tendency to rush over you. And unlike Shakespeare, there's not like a osmosis effect with them, right? Like <laughs> they are, you, you need to pay attention to where he's going with the words or else you'll miss him. And then the thought won't make sense at the end. Um so that, that's a huge part of it, which allows for a very rich reading experience. Music is a huge thing for Tom Stoppard, and it is in this play. He's a very avid uh, consumer of music across all boards. His uh, Another of his plays, Rock and Roll, is all about the musical revolution. I hope we eventually get to do that play, uh, but the Rock and Roll Revolution. But this one is no exception. There's opera in here. There's pop music. There's classical pieces. All and, and this is one of the metaphors. I'm glad you brought up the music because this is one of the metaphors I wanted to talk about. So Henry is this intellectual playwright. He writes these characters and these plays that talk about love and affairs and these clever diatribes and have philosophically complex ideas. And, you know, he he's good at he's good at the sort of wordplay about relationships and creating things. His um his taste in music is he likes apparently bad pop music is sort of his thing. And he knows <laughs> right. all these old bad pop songs. And he, he you know, he says, no, really, I have, I have a real emotional connection to these songs. I love them. They catch me. They drive me. He really likes these bad sort of machine made, easy, <laughs> kind of, you know, just sort of every, just sort of no complexity, all all easy kinds of pop music. Whereas the what he tries to present to the world, early in the play, he's going to be on like a radio show and he has to bring his like top 10 or top eight or whatever songs. And he goes through all of these songs to try to craft this sort of picture of himself as a really well-listened, well-read. I, I love this sort of complex mu- move, music and uh, I've read Finnegan's Wake and I love Finnegan's Wake and I love all these different classical pieces and this song. And But what's underneath it is a love for the ban- the banal, the 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 easy, the mm-hmm. nothing complex, um, stuff that other people would think is cheesy. I wonder, Jackson, is that how his inner life about love works as well? Because he writes and pretends to be a very emotionally complex about love, a very forward-thinking, able to comment disinterestedly on love. And yet when it comes down to it, his picture of love is as old and as common and as cheesy as Shakespeare. Absolutely. That scene where he, that that other scene that Charlotte has in the play, he gets to talk to her and he has this really beautiful kind of description of, I think he calls his, his, his own like naivete with love and, and how it doesn't, it, he, oh, I, I'm going to look at it real quick because it is, it, it really is quite beautiful. This like, this guy who, um, spends his time writing complex arguments and people cheating on each other and he he says um he says he's an idiot right he says that he's th- this idiocy of of love that he is that he he wants it to be committed he wants it to be he talks to his daughter about how uh, the, the the older form of love was knowing the biblical form of love was knowing and the mundanity of knowing someone not just at their best but at their worst and he has you know these kind of these clichés right right of what- he has a very cliché picture of love 
and, and it's sort of it's sort of romantic and cheesy, and it's totally against the image that he tries to put, and totally against the kind of love he tries to write in his plays. His version of love is sort of the gooey, you know, I am totally complete in you, and you are totally complete in me, and we've committed to each other, and that's the end of it, and we're going to be happy, and it's going to be messy, and we're going to fight, but at the end of the day, we love each other so much that we can still find our total fulfillment in each other. And and that sort of to me is sort of the it, it's the view of love that is equivalent to pop music, you know. Yeah, it's yep. it's, it's this sort of cheesy, banal, just ridiculously um, easy view of the world that has no real philosophical complexity or practicality. Yeah, at least in Tom Stoppard's world. Whether that's true of the real world is a larger question. <laughs> right. Um, but then, what I love about that metaphor is then the scene where he has with Annie, where he's admitted that he knows the affair is going on, and he's sort of given it his permission and has had to learn to like what is happening now. At the beginning of the scene, do you remember what he's listening to and has decided that he likes? No, it's I don't. Bach. And he's hated classical music and has been unable to find any sort of complex, enriching, cultured music Mm -hmm. through the course of the play. But then this scene where his view of love is going to be for and his relationships are going to be forced to undergo sort of a heightening and a culturing. He, at the beginning of that scene, is sort of saying, you know, I'm listening to this Bach music. I think I kind of like this song. I'm kind of getting a little bit cultured in my musical tastes. And then Annie proceeds to try to force him to be cultured in his relationship tastes as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and kind of fully develop a a, a different sense of of his own belonging as opposed to the the needing needing both of them to be this this unit that is self-feeding. Um, and whether or not you agree with that or not, I think that is what ultimately he becomes towards the end. He manages to live with it. And at the that, that final scene between the two of them, it is it is absolutely a scene that indicates that the relationship will continue on past past the end of this play. Yeah, absolutely. And who knows how those two conflicting views of relationships would continue on. Maybe now that Annie has completed this sort of passionate interest of hers for several years maybe like jackson said um this sort of this allowance of billy in her life is larger largely part of that pursuit of brody's play but maybe it's a a larger relationship belief about her that my my whole life and my whole life relationship my whole career and my whole sexual life can't be just about you i have to have a part of me that's just me as well and henry says no i want all of me to be about you my work my commitments my life my sexual life my the way that I interact with my daughter, it's all about you. And so though if those two, you know, versions of a relationship, a view of a relationships are both earnestly held by both parties, who knows what kind of grading is going to happen in the future against each other. At the very least, Henry seems to have consented this time to her picture of the world at great pain to him, I think. And and at great pain to her. I don't. I, she's not heartless or anything. I think she knows what she's does. She says, "I chose to hurt you, and it pained me to choose to hurt you." But ultimately, I think it was the best thing. So, so what? What? What is the real thing, Jackson? So, what's the title? Ooh. The title. What is the real thing? <laughs> to love and be loved in return. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, honestly, I think it is something. <laughs> All right, Mister Moulin Rouge. <laughs> Um, 
No, I think, I think I, that you're a little bit more like Henry than he. I know. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, a line like that. The real thing. It is interesting. This is this is. It, it is interesting to watch where uh, playwrights throw in the title of their plays. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the the line or the scene that the the line the real thing is said is quite early in the play. I think it's on page thirty in my script out of a hundred and five, uh, and she's worried that if if it if um. If the uh, sorry, Annie is worried that if her and Henry's affair drags out for too long, he'll realize that it's not the real thing, and that it will. She, like she's accusing him of not wanting to break the news because he's like waiting for this affair to fail, for this right. relationship to fall apart and not be the real thing, like it's like they think it is. Mm-hmm. So I think that I mean it's it's certainly something to do with that tension of of wondering when. When you have trusted someone enough, when when you have given up enough of yourself, when there is enough at stake and enough shared that the the moment is not something scripted, it's not something um, overproduced and and contrived. It is it is an honest sharing of personhood between people, and and that tension of knowing when or if that ever happens for someone. Yeah, you know, maybe the pursuit of the real thing is the pursuit of real love or the pursuit of the real thing is the pursuit of a real relationship. And some of what Tom Stoppard comments on over the play is a real relationship is going to be between two people who have conflicting ideas of what a relationship is, is going to be between two people who have different lives and different uh, goals and achievements. Maybe that's a real relationship. Interestingly, uh, it's the phrase is used again, or it's it's not quite the phrase, but it's something very close later in the play when uh, she confronts him about that sci-fi script. She pulls that sci-fi script out. We've we've talked about that scene. And she says, well, look at this crap that you're writing. And he says, well, well, I'm not really writing that because I want to. It's just alimony. If Charlotte, his ex-wife, would make it legal and would, uh, you know, get married to that guy she's with, then I'd be writing the real stuff. I think is right. what he says. Getting mm-hmm. real close to that real thing. And that is about like the version the versions of yourself that is presented that you have to do for your career to make life work versus what you really want to do as well. So maybe the pursuit of the real thing is the pursuit of what what really your satisfaction is, what you really find fulfillment in. Because mm-hmm. Annie and Henry have a very different picture of what that is. Henry's version of the real satisfaction is in the is in his partner. Annie's is in a different world, not not solely in her partner. Well, we want to open the question up to you all as well. What do you think the real thing is in the context of the script? Script. This conversation works between me and Jacob because we wind up on different sides of it and have different thoughts a lot. And we'd love to have your perspective as well to complete the picture and to keep, you know, talk, just talking about plays in general. It can be a lonely pursuit. Honestly, a good chunk of the reason we're doing this is we like talking about plays together. <laughs> and um, Yes, absolutely. We, we hope that you enjoy hearing the conversation, but we also hope that you will join it. So if you have a minute and, and were inspired by the reading of this play or the listening to this conversation, please find us on Facebook. Instagram or Twitter at NoScript Podcast or on email at NoScript Podcast at gmail.com. 
And if you liked what you heard, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, other theater people. We believe that plays are awesome and theater people will love to hear about plays. So please pass this on to your theater friends, to your friends' friends, to your family friends, what you've heard. If you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that always helps as well, or on Facebook. Uh, You can find our podcast on Podbean, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. And we're working on Google Play as well. We're working so we're, on Google Play. By the time you hear this, we might be on Google Play. Yeah, yeah. So check us out. Uh, we we love to have people listen in and, like Jackson said, uh, contribute to the conversation as well. Yes, indeed. So until next time when we're talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script, the podcast. See ya. I haven't done this show without coffee before. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa.